Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best home of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You and I have the ability and the dignity and the right to make our own decisions and determine our own destiny. You're listening to The Underground. I'm your host, Frank Salvato. Today, I'm talking with two of my good friends down here in the Panhandle of Florida. Um, As I've said before on, on many of the podcasts that I've had, Political correctness is a is a shadow set of rules to the Bill of Rights, unlegislated. It's never been put through anything that has to do with the legislative process. Your representative has not been able to debate this so that it's been voted and codified into law. Political correctness is something that an anointed few, the, the larger voiced people in our society, have mandated for you, whether you like it or not. And this has repercussions not only through our society, but getting into small business, getting into the way that you can use your business, uh, the way you want to run your business, it adds a, a layer of unnecessary hoops to jump through. I'm welcoming Kara Mardell and Andrew Southers, who are in the restaurant industry. They have a deep background that goes beyond that. But as we talk today, I'm going to be asking them about how Political correctness has, I won't say hobbled, because that's not the word, it's not a good word to use, but that has the flavor of the restriction that you must live by when you're, when you're talking about how you execute your business. Especially in this era of COVID and coronavirus, political correctness has run amok. Uh, our society is, is responding in an emotional way rather than a scientific way. And people who are very passionate about their emotions on this subject are inserting things that do not have to actually be inserted when it comes to the science where business is concerned, where the economy is concerned. Um, And it's affecting everything. People are losing their jobs. People are are losing their businesses. People are, uh, our society's never been more divided. I'm of the opinion, as are most people who listen to this show, it's for political purposes, and it's for a controlling purpose. I'm, I'm going to ask Andrew, and he's he's been in, in the restaurant business just a wee bit longer than Kara. I got about 18 years. 
18 years. I don't care how many years have you been? I've got 10. you got 10. So, I mean, it's not... That... Actually, no, it's 11 now. It's, 11 now. it's comparable. Now. Yeah. It's, now. it's they, they understand as business owners and as employees as well mm-hmm. um, the, how business is supposed to work. Well, in, employees and owners. I mean, yeah. we've, we've done the gambit, so... When we talk about the political correctness and, and the way... And we just got finished with, with their podcast, Eat Well, Die Happy... Thanks, which Mike. which I got to tell you, if if you want a break from from all the bullshit that's happening, uh, and you, you want to hear some like true insider fun and just laugh and don't take listen, a break. Don't listen to it if you don't like swearing. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely R rated. It's R rated. Um, it's it's something that uh, that I enjoy listening to, and everybody that I've turned on to enjoys listening to it as well. well because thank there's you. a lot, there's a lot of truth. Appreciate that involved with it. You you moved from a very respected type of existence in mm-hmm. Lexington, Kentucky, which sure. is a, which is a place that is growing and becoming bigger and bigger in the culinary field. Well, and for what for what we did, it was an area that was a continually growing field. It was Absolutely. an area that was, yeah, we, you know, a very much food centric, whether it be a food truck or a restaurant or fine dining or casual dining. It was a, it was a growing scene. Yeah. It was. It was something. Everyone where, was excited about food. Absolutely, no question. Fair to say, cutting edge. Very, yes. very much so. We uh, were. I mean, I look at Lexington as uh, when I got there, and especially when Kara kind of started coming up. Um, that is a scene that is very progressive, very moving forward in a lot of directions with more female chefs, with higher end cuisine, with uh, they're they're really striving to make a name uh, a name for themselves. We just got finished with a with an episode where they were talking about how the flavor inside the kitchens, where where the food is made and where people have to work, kind of like clockwork, in order to make mm-hmm. everything happen. Everything has to be symbiotic. Everything has to has to happen in a certain order. It has to be timed. It requires cooperation from everybody in order to make it come out the way it should. Absolutely. And and how political correctness is infringing on the creative aspect of being able to do that because now you have to add the component of do I get to look at somebody in a time-sensitive manner and say, you really have to do this now. I don't want to hear any excuses. I don't want to hear, and I'm not going to coddle you. We've moved from a time when... A chef or a business owner or or someone who, even if it's a machine shop, sure. you, I don't have time for your foolishness. I'm not going to coddle you. You must do this because this is the way my business needs to perform. I will I will say, as someone that, uh, in the only difference between Kara and I, is that I, I did come up through some very, you know, strict, fine-dining French kitchens. You know, the idea was it's a brigade system, it's very militaristic, and you ate the sandwich. I mean, you you were yelled at, you were screamed at, you were berated when you didn't perform, and that was okay. Like, it was understood. That's how the operation had to work, to put out the best product. I can say now, many years later, now that, you know, as an owner and whatever, it's like the idea of how line cooks should be treated and should whatever has changed. And I agree with some of that to a point, but I think the beauty of this business was always like you had to come up and make your bones and really, you know, prove yourself to get those better jobs. 
you know, Dude, it's it, almost like a when you get into the into the restaurant business, into um, into working in a kitchen and making that your profession, mm-hmm. because this is a professional job. This is not something. I mean, you well, yeah, if, what, if you that, want to go over to a fast food restaurant and have an hourly job because you want to do something, you can do that. But don't kid yourself that you are in a culinary artist. Those, those are similar jobs, but again, those are. Night and day different. Well, and again, that's the only reason that, like, I'll disagree with Andrew in this spec is, like, yes, you did come up, like, through that regimented kitchen, but at the same point as someone like me coming up through kitchens where I don't have a culinary degree, I just have a love of the craft, and I'm very, you know, I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed to have had people that could point me in the right direction, and I'm not going to say that, like, I suffered as much as people who, and I've worked for my fair share of shitty chefs. Absolutely. But the fact that I had people like chefs that wanted to mentor more than degrade was a very good point for me. But also like, you know, you, you do have to fight. You have to fight very hard and you have to fight and you have to show up earlier and work harder and stay later. I think as far and, as what, what hurt our industry really was the food network. It really did. It, it took away you know, you're talking not, about the you're talking about the and I'm not talking about the channel. I'm talking about the whole idea of like suddenly there was an era in the early 2000s where like, oh, man, being a chef is like a thing to do. And it's a thing we want to put on TV. And they also wanted to see the screaming chef. But I mean, let's let's be honest, like it's thankless work. Like, but at the end of the day, it, you know, it was always before that more or less, even if you went to culinary school, it's an artisan guild system. And I think that's what we're missing in this country. And not just from chefs. I'm talking about the trade system. Like somehow along the lines, it became a thing where it was like, okay to tell kids, like, you have to go to college. You have to go to college. You have to, or you'll never be a success in life. You lost the trade school mentality. Yeah. You lost the idea of like, it's okay to like, if you love cars, go work on cars the rest of your life and do it well. But if your father was a plumber... And you've got an in with a plumber's union and you know he made good money your whole life and took care of your family. Go do that. We are losing that. But at the same point, also, like, there are a lot of factors outside of that mm-hmm. that affect our industry, like, including social media. When, when we talk about the, the artisan craft and, you know, we, you hear a lot, of, a lot of talk today about it's important to buy made in America. It's mm-hmm. important to buy this. More important than that, I believe, is we need to steer back to a moment in time when people are proud to provide quality for what they're making. Amen. Yeah. And in, I'm using the restaurant industry it's a perfect as, example. A, as an example. Absolutely. We've become such an instant gratification type of society that eating out is going through the sure. drive through at McDonald's. Yeah. But that's not new. I mean, that's been going on since the 80s. But at the end of the day, if you wanted to go out, have a night out, have something you enjoy, you went to a restaurant. And not just a night out. I mean, if you appreciated food in any general, then to support, you know, the local became on the well of the chefs. And I think... We didn't really see that movement until about the early 2000s. And now it's blown up. Now every chef is trying to say, I buy local. I do this. And they should. And that's what we should have always done. That's what we messed up. Well, and that's what being a chef is about. Being a chef is about utilizing the tools that you have. And the other good thing about like being a chef here 
is that because we have so many diversities of culture Mm -hmm. all around, the whole melding pot is like, there is no true American cuisine. Absolutely. You derive off of what you learned from the chefs that taught you or your family or your mother or your grandparents or your great grandparents. And that's what shapes this cuisine right now. And the fact that people are always trying to infuse or cut the edge or do something different with that is what makes food here so beautiful. But on the other end of that is the general consumer is so concerned about, can I get a $12 ticket? Right. As and opposed to a good, you know, a good experience and I think good as food. A, as a restaurant owner, that's, and you know, I, I've been a chef for years, but like now I'm new to ownership as is Kara. And what we're finding with, you know, we're trying to provide the best product we can and locally sourced product we can. People are so ingrained right now in the idea of, well, I can get this somewhere else or a version of it somewhere else for exponentially less. And what people don't realize is they're not getting the same version. But they're not getting that American product. They're not getting that love put into it. They're not getting it made from scratch. They're buying it from a wholesaler. They're buying it from... And who knows where these wholesalers come from? We we talk about... uh, Instant gratification. We, did we talk about the... Uh, the I mean, that's the most American idea ever. Yes. Yeah. I want it now. I want it now. Yeah. When you juxtapose that to remembering what it was like, and we just got finished talking about this before the show, mm-hmm. talking about the difference between the quality of food from the mass-marketed places and what it's like when you go to a mom-and-pop restaurant and try to equate that to what you may have gotten sure. from grandma or may have gotten from... From home cooked meals at home, there were, there was a pride that was instilled in making that because it was supposed to end at a certain place. When we're talking about and and, and the the overall point that I'm trying to make here is about political correctness and how it hobbles you from doing exactly that, right? As a small business owner. So my biggest problem that I found is that between Andrew and myself. We both have very high integrity in our product. We have very high standards. And again, our menus are very much as two chefs. Sometimes we derive off of one person more than the other. But for the majority of the time, our menus are right in between because we have the same integrity. So I would say our our struggle in the market we're in uh, is that we are competing with restaurants that are willing to serve that fast, casual public. Exactly. So they are willing to buy-in and cut this corner, X corner, and that's fine. Let me ask you this, and and I'm going to ask you to divide your answers sure, into of personal. When it comes to being able to have pride in your product, mm-hmm. use your local stuff, and be able to bruise, produce it the way you want to produce it, what do you think the biggest impediments to achieving that is? I mean, I think aside from the agricultural diversity down here, which is something that I'm not used to. So we've spent a lot of time like trying to locally source and actually trying to do seasonal farm to table, like true farm to table product. That's it, always been a bit. It's, uh, it, it's, yeah, it, it's yeah. been, it's been a big obstacle. We came from farm, but land, so we do what we can. I think the biggest thing that we have down here is that being in the area that we are, and I'm going to refer to it as a tourist trap because that's what it is. You're so totally right. although we're serving this product that we are used to serving and we're serving this food that we are used to doing, 
we're still getting caught in the basket of getting customer complaints where I'm not serving a $7 shrimp because I don't buy frozen shrimp. Right. And I like, I've had so many customer complaints about it. And like that, I think that's my biggest obstacle is that we, we work fresh and we work seasonally and unfortunately down in where we are, like that's not the case. I think overall, the thing about that is, there was a, a very good stream in this industry where people were begging for farmer's market and we want fresh, we want local, we want this. And that's kind of what we've come up under. And I wholeheartedly support the local farm industry. I have been a chef that's always been about what can I get local? What's the closest I can get this fish? And from? there's a reason for yeah. that. It's and there's a reason for a that. It's product. because it's a better product. I mean, you look at it, it's like, we have come from backgrounds where you have a pork guy, a beef guy, an egg guy, a mushroom guy, an herb guy, a microgreen guy. Like you always have somebody in that specialty. And right now, like moving down to the Gulf Coast, the specialty is seafood. We yeah. live next to the Gulf. So we work seasonally yeah. with seasonal fish, with seasonal fishermen. You know, we, we, know we always try to run our features is. based on what's, you know, what are the boats bringing in this week? And, you know, way- I'd, I'd rather bring in that fish that came in that week than what was frozen on well, a boat and, and from the way, whatever purveyor. The way that and I can describe really it, the way that I can describe it is, it's like serving caprese in February, right? Because you're not getting a good tomato. You yeah. don't serve why, fish out of season. Why do you have a caprese season? salad in your menu in February when the tomatoes are clearly brought in from somewhere else? But if you go to a if you go to a chain Italian restaurant, they're always going to have. They're the always on the menu, of course, and you know those tomatoes are coming from South America or Mexico or whatever. But also, as chefs, we don't have to keep our menu static we keep our menu seasonal so that we can make fresh product i think that's the this is is and this kind of circles back to what we were talking about before you don't need to go to college you don't need to when you're if your dad was a a plumber and you have an in when you can actually benefit from actually being local when you can benefit from saying you know what we we live on the gulf coast as kara was saying so so why not do the fresh seafood that's being caught today that happens to be in season because the earth says this is what the season is for right. fish. I mean you you tie and, into your network. And also that's our job as chefs. Yes. Our job as chefs are to use the product that the earth gives us. When you look at the your job optimally mm-hmm. to have the freedom to be able to say my menu is going to change so I can give you the best taste sensation you could possibly have of course. For that month, for that season, for that quarter, this is what we're going to do. When it when we start talking about regulation and political correctness, I'm going to get into the employer employee sure. part of political no, correctness. No, we're talking food right bit. now. Yeah, that's fine. When you get into the regulation, that's, like, that's what okay. we're good at. <laughs> oh, that's later on. When you start talking about the regulation that mm-hmm. has to happen because of an ideology. Right. Not necessarily what the earth has to offer, not necessarily what the market brings to bear, but because this special interest group has decided here that this time is not correct. How does that bastardize your industry? Quite a bit. Uh, I'm not going to lie. When I came up early as a chef, you know, I was... I was nobody. And here's a great quick background. As is everybody that like, comes literally, up being a chef. <laughs> I literally, uh, I moved from Kentucky to Minneapolis to go to culinary school only because I had some family up there. But I knew nothing about the restaurant industry. 
at all. I mean, my only credits were that I worked at a very high-end pizza joint in Kentucky. That was my only credentials. The only reason I even got a foot in the door is that I had a cousin that knew the owner and was like, hey, you know, can you give this guy a job? And I got the worst job ever. And I was, you know, the prep cook cutting onions and peppers and whatever. Eventually worked my way up to, you know, making homemade pastas. But that's what this job entails. Like this job in the high end, you know, idea of it is an artisan guild system. And I loved it. I mean, anyone that says they didn't love coming up that way is a liar. They didn't make their bones right. You know, I fought my way. I didn't get a job because I went to Le Cordon Bleu. I got a job because I worked my ass off and I took this job or the next job and I wanted to learn from this chef or that chef. Well, and the best way of that is explaining like how, you know, coming up through kitchen jobs when I, you know, went to school for psychopharmacology and by the time that I figured out and I worked and I grinded and every chef I went back to and I said, should I go to culinary school? They said no. And that's a, that's a tough question I get all the time. I get parents that come to me. Over the years, time and time again, hey, you know, my my kid loves to cook. They're a senior in high school. Should I send them to college or should I send them to culinary school? And I tell them the same thing. I was like, go home, buy a 50-pound bag of carrots, make them peel it, make them dice it, and then when they're done, throw it in the garbage and make them do it again. And if they're okay with that, because that's literally what you're going to do your first year. And that's what people don't understand. It's like, I love the artisan guild system, again. But what people that spend these thousands of dollars on, on these culinary schools, is they think they're going to come out. You see the commercials like, oh, be a chef. You want to be a chef. Well, it doesn't work that way. You get out of school, and you still get the same prep cook job that you could have just applied for. So now you're 50 grand in debt. My favorite was... uh helping a cook peel eggs one night because we had a like sous vide egg dish like it was a scotch egg so we sous vide these duck eggs and like we wrap them in sausage he's running behind so as the saute chef i'm now like helping him peel eggs so we can be on time for service and he goes well i'm super happy that i went to culinary school to peel eggs and one of our vet line cooks and i mean like 25 years grill cook you know been in the game he goes I'm super happy that I went to culinary school to learn fancy words like mise en place. Right. I mean, here's the deal. Culinary school is beneficial if you make it work for you. And I think that's the truth of any trade school. You could definitely learn that same trade working up well, and I'll say the same as thing, an apprenticeship. I'll say the same thing over and over. If somebody offered to pay my way through culinary school, I would do it. But also I've had everybody tell me they're like, you're going to be bored. Well, you've already been, you've you've already been, been able to be you've creative. Been work, right. You've been working through these processes. Not saying that I wouldn't learn something from it. And you would. But. So when we look at, at the American workplace, so to, I, uh, to, bring the, to bring this back to a, to a sort of employer type of thing. Right. When you look at it, someone who you're going to hire. So when I see a resume. When you see, when you see a resume and you see someone I've... I'm, I, I've been to uh, the Cordon Bleu, the Cordon Bleu or, I've been or to CIA, I've CIA, been, Johnson Wales, whatever. Or you have someone say that, well, I've worked my way up through these five restaurants in Chicago or that New guy York. is a hundred percent getting hired for. I'd rather if see... he's got if he's got a pedigree that says I started here as a dishwasher at this and I started here at this and I know those names. 
That guy's getting hired 100%. Well, faster. I mean, and honestly, like, and this is where, again, you and, you and I may differentiate, but I would rather see a resume that says, I worked as a fry cook, I worked as a grill cook, I worked as a saute cook I worked at my way X, up. Y, and Z, as opposed to, I have a degree. Because the one thing that I have a problem with is that, as somebody who did not go to culinary school, who worked their way through the ranks, who sat and watched and listened and learned. I can tell you now, $54,000 of a degree at Le Cordon Bleu, all that got me was I probably got a sous chef job about two years earlier well, hey, than like, I should have. I, I, And that's what my thing was. It was like, I already spent... And I still wasn't making shit. I already spent $60,000 on an education. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to go do it again. No, of course. And so if I see somebody that's willing to work, and honestly, like the people that are willing to work through that as opposed to you coming out of culinary school and immediately feeling entitled to something and that's are the, the people that I, I would rather have. Stepping back into the roles of employers, mm-hmm. do you think that's a problem with a, a significant problem in society today? Coming out of everyone is, saying, everyone is expected, especially coming out of, you know, I can only speak for culinary school, but I, I can't say like, oh, well, I came out with my master's in this and whatever. Everyone feels like right now they're entitled to something. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I put all this work in, I paid all this money. Well, where's my money? And particularly, particularly in culinary is because people come in and they have, again, with the rise of social media, with the rise of reality shows, people come out of culinary school and they expect to be the next Gordon Ramsay. I can't speak on a different industry, but I'll tell you this. I don't care if you come out of school with high marks and whatever. If you can't step on my line and cook and perform, you're worthless to me. Well, and it's a big problem. So, I mean, school will teach you these recipes and these, you know, basics and these techniques, but they don't teach you the hand-to-hand, what it is to live a life in the day of how do I get through 300 people? And the best way way I can describe it is, like, if you're in school for a scientific field, at some point in time, they teach you how to make aspirin, right? So you do all these chemical reactions and you make aspirin. They don't teach you how to make 55 aspirin in an hour. Right. They teach you the theory, but they don't teach you the work. So there, you're, there's a difference. There's a disconnect. There's, and and uh, this is something that I've talked about quite a bit over the years. There's a difference between book smart and yes. being able to apply the knowledge that you're I mean, let's call it what it is. Yeah, it's, it's street smart. It's, it's restaurant smart. It's, this is how we operate. There is no daily operation being taught. I want to get a little bit deeper into what we were talking about on your show. And we're talking to Andrew Southers and Kara Mardell. Um, They're professional chefs, Mm -hmm. and they have a podcast called Eat Well, Die Happy that you can hear on all the places I heard all the way down. To touch on briefly, we were talking about uh, the hoops that political correctness bring into everything. And my question to both of you is when these politically correct type of aspects to the industry sure. enter into your daily routine, how does that reduce the freedom that you all have to be able to produce the product that you want? That's a uh, that's a very that's a difficult sentiment um, because also we draw a very fine line. So as chefs and that's what we are our objective is to but you're also business owners we are right. we are but i'm saying like at the core we are business owners because we are chefs 
Yes. We own a restaurant because we are that passionate about the food that we make. So we want to provide the food that we are capable of doing with the, you know, like seasonal sourcing with the care in the product. The reason that we work hours off the clock and we don't care about because the integrity of our product is that important to us. I think the political aspect of it is that when, especially moving to a small town, you have people that are not in your corner, which we are never again, as chefs politically aligned. Our product is our product. We come to make food. That's what we do. Yeah. We came down here. We to... don't, we don't discriminate. We don't ask questions. If you come into our restaurant, you're here to eat. And that's our service. I learned this. So the minute that I learned this a long time ago, so the minute that it becomes politically aligned is where it becomes an issue for at least me personally, because again, I want to make food. I want to make people happy. That's what we're here. And And I I have have a dining room that you sit down and you eat. I have told our staff always, you know, there are certain things you just don't money and politics, money, politics, and religion. Yep. Those things stay in your heart. You can listen to your customer bitch and moan about this political candidate or this president or whatever. I don't care. Take it, own it. You don't get to give your opinion. Front of house, back house, it doesn't exist in a restaurant. We are here. This is the service industry, and that's what a lot of people seem to forget. We are here to serve the public. We are the hospitality industry. Exactly. The hospitality industry needs to remember that PC does not exist with us, with our customers. And we may joke, and we may say, like, you know, like, I had this horrible experience, whatever. But at at the end of the day, we come in here to serve the public. Absolutely. And we come in here because at the end of the day, no matter what is going on in your life, if we can sit you down and you can eat for 10 minutes and you can focus on nothing better than the food you have in front of you and the company you have in front of you. Yeah. We've done our job. We are here to provide an experience. Let me let me ask you your thought process on the more socially conscious and I'm mm-hmm. using that that term loosely, I know where you're going. I think it's yeah. kind of bullshit to be <laughs> when you see a chain mm-hmm. make a political declaration about something that's happening out there right. and say, this is what we're going to, we stand with this, we're supporting that, we're out there talking politically instead of worrying about our product. I How, think, what, 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 what's in the back of your mind about that? I, that I think at the end publicly? of the day, that's a business decision. Yeah. It's, I think it's a poor decision. But I, I mean, think your best decision is to, and we've always said it from day one, we're Switzerland. We are neutral. Yeah. I don't care what my politics are versus her politics. I want to give my customers an experience, and that's what matters. My, I mean, my. I mean, if obviously, if somebody is being, you know, if, if, if somebody is being bigoted in any kind of way, whether it be, you know, like gender related, religious related, race related, you know, handicapped, whatever, I don't care. I'm not going to tolerate. It's not that you don't care. No, no of course we care. No, I'm not. I'm, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm it, not going to tolerate somebody like that in my place of business. We are an industry that thrives on regular business. Let's, so let, why let, would you let's, ever? Let's throw this thought onto a national debate stage sure. rather than how it is to a customer in okay, here. Mm-hmm. So when it, you see a Starbucks, yeah, or you see a. Uh, to, so like to a go large on, to go on to the other side of the Chick-fil-A or Whoever. you see this saying we're taking a stand on this ideological and social issue. I personally it's not, as, it's not your place. As a small business owner, I think it's a poor decision. 
you alienate your customer base. I mean, you are in business. Why would you not just be neutral? No, let, let no, me, no one will ever fault you for being Switzerland. Let me ask you this. While the corporate heads of these corporations are making these decisions about how this their chain, their brand is going to be perceived. Well, you've in, got to realize these the are... Social, what, yeah. what is, the, what is the, the unit manager... That's what I'm how saying. Does it, how does it affect the employee at that unit? So, at store well, one I mean, so you've got the manager that may be politically aligned or ideologically aligned, and he's upset about it. Or he now that's affecting his work, and that's affecting his team's work. Again, I think if you just, you know, I've always said from day one, when I've been a head chef or owner, I've always said, these are the non-things we talk about. We are Switzerland. We stay neutral. Keep those opinions to yourself. And I'm not saying that because I align one way or another. I'm just saying that's how you run a business. If you want to run a business and make people want to come in the fucking door. Well, me. I wouldn't even say a business, but particularly a restaurant. Right? Well, and our job is to serve food. And that's the thing. But also, we are the service industry. But also, you haven't even gotten into you internally how we treat our staff. So on the surface area of of it, we treat our customers in the terms of everyone is neutral. You come in on your own terms. We serve you food. You're here to be provided a service, which we provide. But then when it gets down to the core of it, we take care of our staff Mm -hmm. and we take care of our staff. And especially like in this industry with the mental health, one of my cooks or my servers ever called me and they said, Hey, I'm having a really hard time with this. And I mean, you you recognize a pattern. There are people that use that as an excuse, and there are people who actually do have these issues. And they say, I'm having a hard time with this. I can't deal with this because it's very prevalent in our industry. I will never, ever negate somebody's mental health. I will pick up a station before I give that let's, into somebody. Let's, let's move pivot for a little bit. Yeah, because um, mental health is important, and, and a good employer well, is always always concerned about their employees' well-being. The people that an, an employer who doesn't care about an, an individual employee's well-being to the point of making sure they're at least put on the right path is a crappy employer, as far as I'm concerned. We know the old the old but joke what, used to be. What about the person who comes to work in the kitchen and says, um, "You know, I know I'm supposed to be here to." to do my prep work today, but um, you're going to have to respect my right to want to go out and do this, oh. this social movement oh, thing. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Not a, no. And, and so actually I have one good example of that was that I worked for a chef who we had a women's march. And again, like, In I am a hundred percent for women's rights. Absolutely. Obviously, we all like are. I'm a woman, like I am working in a kitchen. I'm working in a male dominated industry, but we had one girl that left and she was like, I'm going to go march. I'm not going to work. And he looked at me and he said, well, you can go march if you want to. And I was like, no, chef. I was like, we have to run the kitchen tonight. Yeah. I mean, And I'm not going to leave. I was like, I am for women's rights. But also, like. You're still hired by an employee. I have a job. And we have to make a kitchen run smooth. And so if I leave, somebody else has to pick up my station. Yeah. So now you've put that work on everyone else. I don't care what the movement is. You're still hired to do a job. You either do that job or you're fired. And I don't give a shit if you're fired because you want to stand up for whatever movement. 
Well, no, you I, didn't show I, up for and your again, job. Also, like, I feel like the same thing. I feel like if I told you, I was like, I really feel passionately about this and I want to go march for this or protest for this, you would let me go do it. I probably would, but my point being... But I'd also let, find someone to cover me. But my, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you would cover your shift. Let, let me ask you this, and this is specific to exactly what you just sure. said, Kara. Shouldn't the employer have the freedom to be able to make that choice about whether or not he's going to say, hey... You're obligated because you have this job to be here. No, absolutely. Yeah. And, and in terms but you know of, what? I'm going to let you go no, do that. In, terms, so of, in he, terms of this, at the end of the day, your employer signs your paycheck. Yes. So there is, and I don't want to say a loss of rights, but there is a loss of freedom that comes with having any so kind here, of job. A, any kind of job, whether it be Wendy's, whether it be fast food, whether it be fine dining, the person that is in charge of you you have your rights outlined for you when you start that job. So if you violate those or your employee or your employer, I'm sorry, is willing to let you manipulate those, that's up to them. At the end of the day, if, you know, it's it's pretty common restaurant practice. You know, we make schedules typically bi-weekly. And this is more the mom and pop shop, but even the big shops I've worked in, even the hotels I've worked in had this kind of industry practice. If you need a day off, you know, you ask for it in writing, whatever. But if you needed one kind of on the fly, like, hey, I want to go be a part of this protest that just showed up, that's fine. You cover your shift. And that's what it comes down to. If you covered your shift, I don't give a shit what you did. But if you didn't cover your shift and you didn't tell me about it, you're probably fired. So using the old the old adage that uh, your freedom to throw a punch ends where my nose begins... Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the that day, you're, to, that he, applies to to a small, a, an individual absolutely. mom and pop employer as 100%. well. If you want to go do this, make sure you do no harm to the business. Well, exactly. And that's the I mean, problem. why should we suffer as a business? Because whether you're making a right or wrong stand, I don't care. It's not my problem. I'm a business owner. Well, so you are still employed by me. This shift needs to be covered. People are still coming in to eat. So if you decide, you know, this was a big thing in Minneapolis. Um, I, I ran through this. Um, there were a lot of Latinos. I want to say this, you know, I loved my Latino cooks. They were some of the best I ever had. And the majority of my kitchens were that. And there was a time in Minneapolis when I was there that they were, basically there was a big wage protest on uh, minimum wage. And I supported all of them. I said, hey, if you're off that day, go protest. I actually spoke on the Minnesota State Council about, like, yeah, these guys do deserve, you know, they need more money. I don't want a higher tip wage for servers because these guys are working under a shorter glass ceiling. These guys are working really hard, and they deserve the money they're getting. What I said at the end of the day was, if you want to go protest, cover your shift. Don't just not show up for work. So there is an obligation to make sure you do no harm. Because what happened was, when it was... You know, hey, it was Latino protest day and nobody showed up for work. The hotel was fucked and we had to let some people go because we stood by our ground. I will support anyone's political obligations, whether I believe it or not. It's not my job. It's not my position. I don't care if I align with you. I respect you and your right to protest. But at the same time, I'm not going to give the day off. I already scheduled you. If I gave you a schedule two weeks ago and you said I have to go protest this, well, cover your shift. That's all I ask. Well, and that and that's well, down to accountability too. There's yeah. a, I want to pivot here to something that you said. You brought up your Latino cooks. There's a there's a, a very natural diversity that happens in the mm-hmm. restaurant industry. Certainly, 
and as we talked about in the beginning of the program, merit is a gigantic thing in the food industry, especially mm-hmm. in the kitchen. You can have a degree from from Le Cordon Bleu or CIA, but if you don't know how to do something, the person without the degree and is the, day, the person it's, who gets It's the, call. the guy that can do the job. So, so I, I can tell you now. Would you consider the restaurant industry, the culinary art, a merit-based system? Absolutely. And I will say for sure, living down here now where I am, versus even Lexington, where I didn't have that population because the Latino population was all involved in the horse industry, I would give my thumb. I would literally give my thumb for good Latino cooks. They you, were that good. Dude, when you look and at... And they were that hardworking. When you look at the natural diversity that happens in the kitchen, it's a natural diversity. Of course. What would forced diversity do to your kitchen? Well, I think the good example is a story I told you before. Um, you know, it's not my story, but it's from a chef previous to me who was working in San Diego, and he had a kitchen. He had two kitchen cooks working side by side. One was from Laos, one was from Cambodia, and they literally fought day and night. Not because they didn't like each other, just because of politics. And it came down to a knife fight, and police were involved, and like there was a stabbing involved. So I think. Kitchen politics comes down to, as a chef, you build your team. You build your team, you build your people, but everybody's got to know how to play well together at that point. Do you reserve the right to be able to terminate someone who isn't doing their job well? Absolutely. 100%. I think a kitchen more than any other industry, it's like, if you're not performing, I'm a free fire. I want to let you go. Now, when you when you add the idea that, and this is prevalent. And I'm not letting is. you go because you're a woman or because you're... A nurse, a certain see, you're going to you're, you're get pushback on I that have in society that. today. So you're firing me because I'm a woman. Or no, you're, I'm, you're firing me because you've got you need to make space for somebody I, else. I'm like the different. one woman in the kitchen has not said anything during all Would of you this. Would you not agree, <laughs> woman or whatever ethnicity or whatever? Would you not agree that if someone doesn't perform, they're fucking gone? Kitchens work that way. I, I will say that. You've got them. I will, I will say that. But also, again, I've been on the other end of the spectrum. I agree. Where it's like, I've been passed over for jobs because I am a female. Certainly. Like, that's, you, that stigma very much exists still. Now, also, again, I've worked for very good chefs who have said the opposite. Mm-hmm. Where they say, you do her job better than she can, and you can have it. Yeah. Do you do you think that when, when we're talking about those two, and I'm talking to you specifically, Kara... You've got these two different experiences where you've got somebody who's just, well, she's a woman. She doesn't know how to do this. Sure. And you've got somebody who says, you know what? She does a much better job. Do you think that it's the government's place to step in or do you think that restaurant should just live and die by the decision that person makes? I'm kind of torn on that issue because on the other side of things, like I don't want the government to step in on terms of a, I'm going to call it sexist proposal where you have to give a woman an opportunity to do her job well, to, you know, like escalate in a kitchen, to move up through the ranks. Also, on the other hand, like I've dealt with chefs who are incredibly sexist, who don't want a female to move up through the ranks. And again, like my outlook on it is just the same that, you know, finally I had a chef say where she does this job better than you do. And if you you want it, fight for it. It's not my place as a girl or I don't feel like any other girl has the same opportunity. Like we're not looking for a handout. We're not looking for a opportunity because we're females. It's just simplest, like simplistically the matter of 
we do our job well and we work hard for it. And if we can do it better than somebody else, we deserve that position. I I will only chime in in that I can say that in the years I've been a head chef, I have had kitchens that were actually primarily female kitchens. Um, I actually, as a chef, kind of preferred it. I mean, it was a better working dynamic. And I'm not saying that's good, bad, or otherwise. It just worked for me. But I have seen these female chefs that have come up under me. You know, Cassie's now working for a Michelin starred restaurant. Fantastic. Michelle's working for Ruth Chris. I mean, I have really brought some young, talented girls up. And I don't think that's gender specific. I think it's just I recognize talent. And as a chef, you need to recognize talent. Male, female, black, white, Latino, doesn't matter. But also at the I've same time. I've promoted a million people in my career. This female talent has also gone out and done things under their own And had to work own twice wing. as hard. I agree. And done things under their own terms. So it's like, yes, like you may have given somebody the opportunity, but they went out and they made something of it. If you could throw a curtain, a curtain in front of it. If I could throw a curtain under it, I would say. So that you couldn't see who the person was on the other side who was performing. Sure. Uh, mine would come to, I want to read a resume and I want to eat some food. And I don't care who it is. That's that simple. I'm going to give you guys, before we wrap it up, I want to give you each a minute or so. On the subject of political correctness and how it is, mm-hmm. how it has affected your business as business owners. Sure. To say whatever you want. And I'll go with Andrew first. <sighs> so as far as political correctness and just the whole PC whatnot, um, yeah, it's definitely changed the restaurant industry. It's changed the way kitchens operate. Um, some of it I definitely agree with. I think growing up in kitchens that were really hard where, you know, you got swore at and pans thrown at you, it was a little rough. It was a little, like, I guess detrimental but not. I mean, I think it's made me the chef I was. But at the same time, you know, the way I operate now, I came up with some chefs who were like, if you treat your staff like gold and you yell at them when you need to, that's the way to operate. So looking now where I am, I mean, we're talking 2020. Uh, I mean, I still like to think that male, female, whatever gender, whatever race, I treat them all the same. You either perform or you don't. And that's the way this business is run. It's all business-based performance. I don't care what you look like, who you are, where you came from, who you had sex with. If you can cook, I'm going to hire you. If you can't, I'm going to fire you. Kara? So I think political correctness, like to me, strikes slightly a different chord. I don't think of political correct as the interaction in business to business. Like as far as like owner to employee, like absolutely, you have to maintain that level of it. But as a new business owner... Like to the higher conglomerates of business, I think that it's incredibly frustrating to have to placate to the higher power, so to speak. Amen. I think it's hard to operate a business where, again, like as a chef, I provide a service that people are asking for, and then I have to answer to people that have a different ideal of what I want to do and who also have power to affect what I'm trying to do. I think a lot of that's more generational too. No, it's not been generational because these are not people that I'm dealing with in my generation as a, that's my point as a 27 year old. I feel like I have a huge regard of common sense. No, you absolutely do. And look at all these people we've been dealing with, with this situation, with our current restaurant. And we're dealing with 
literally a generation above us and they are like looking at us like we don't know what the fuck we're talking about but again that's why he split this question in two parts <laughs> but you know again like it, i i sit here and i deal with these people that have all these questions that i provide like a reasonable answer to that still for some reason know better about an industry that i am familiar with that they are not there's a level of arrogance there isn't there Amen. absolutely absolutely and also the fact that Especially, again, like as a girl, I am not an intelligent. Like the culinary field was not my initial industry. I went through college. I did all of these things. I went through the medical field. You know, I cook because I love to cook, not because I had to. Right. And so when I come through this industry of like lawyers and doctors and businessmen, and then I have people sitting there trying to explain to me what business is. It's very frustrating, but yes, it's, you know, again, the biggest frustration of the industry is like, nobody takes us seriously because they look at us as cooks. Well, it's a combination of things. They, you know, I mean, this has always been an industry that primarily has been, you know, being a restaurateur is acknowledged when you are successful. Right. But when you're, you know, a chef, it's like, oh, well, I think I know who chefs are. And most of them came up from being ex-cons or whatever. And then the fact that Karen and I are both tattooed, you know, we get that stigma about us. But at the end of the day, we're both college educated. You know, we're both very intelligent. We both know a lot about business and how this business works. And we are treated with, you know, kind of soft hands and thinking they can, you know, take one over on us. And that's been a, a constant theme. Kara Mardell. Andrew Southern. Thank you. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us today. Um, you know, political correctness is, is something that we throw around as a term, but we have to look at the implications of what that practice does to individuals as well as looking at it as a societal thing. When you have unlegislated mandates that have to take place because the loud the influential or the coercive say you must do what I tell you to do, that robs freedom from people. and It robs industries and small business from their ability to execute the way they want to, which provides that, that much celebrated diversity that everybody wants. If, if you want to have diversity, you have to let people have freedom to, to be diverse. If you're saying you have to always operate in this narrow structure of what's right and what's wrong, you never get to think outside the box. And I think that's what a lot of people would like us not to do, is think outside the box. You're listening to The Underground. I'll be right back with my weekly segment on the Captain's America Third Watch, listened to by over 2 million people daily on the Salem and Genesis Communications Network, right after this. This podcast segment has been brought to you by the Emerald Coast Tea Company, makers of all-natural, handcrafted, exotic blend teas. When it comes to tea, no matter what your preference, the Emerald Coast Tea Company has a tea or tea blend just for you. Order yours today at emeraldcoastteacompany.com. News, insight, passion. AM 930, The Answer. Captain's America, Third Watch. Coming to you live from Tampa. Call in now and talk to Captain Matt toll-free, 877-969-8600. I'm your captain. 
on the air, taking on enemies foreign and domestic, and uniting Americans to the cause of liberty. We will rally the world to this cause by our efforts, by our courage. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Good morning, America! Hello, world, and welcome to the Friday morning edition of the Captain's America Third Watch. I'm your host, Captain Matt Bruce, broadcasting tomorrow's news tonight right here from our Salem Media Group flagship radio stations in Tampa, Florida, and my Moss Family Automotive Studio heard across America on some of America's great radio stations, also all across the Caribbean where we currently have a hurricane moving across and streaming live on the Internet and satellite all around the world. Now, a special shout-out always goes to our active-duty military and our veterans. We also salute our first responders to include our EMTs, our firefighters, our police, our hospital and ER room workers, our 911 dispatchers, the Custom and Border Patrol, the security officers, the U.S. Coast Guard, and all of those helping in the coronavirus effort, too, keeping us free and safe. Now to the truckers, the warehouse, the factory workers, the butchers and bakers, the janitors, the maintenance, the mechanics, construction workers, the bulk mail centers, all the Uber, Lyft, taxi, and bus drivers, too, along with the roughnecks working on the oil rigs and those bridge tenders lifting the bridges up and down for the boats to go under. Thanks for all that you do. Now, you can follow us on Facebook. Facebook, the official Captain's America Third Watch Facebook page on Twitter at Captain's America and check out our all new website, the Captain's America Third Watch.com. And joining us right now is Frank Salvato from the Underground USA podcast. Good morning, sir. Mr. Captain. Let's get it started with the pledge. Are you ready? Let's do it. I pledge allegiance, I pledge allegiance to, the to the flag of the United, of the United States, States of America, America and, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We emphasize the two words, under God, because our great country was founded on Judeo-Christian values. Well, today, Tampa this afternoon is going to be graced with the uh, presence and the visit of President Donald Trump. He is not here to uh, have a rally or an event or anything like that. He's here to attend uh, a security uh, conference, uh, and then he's going to go from there to a um, uh, uh, gala fundraising event. Uh, And uh, it's a very expensive event, I might add, $100,000 a plate. Uh, to be involved in that one? Well, you know, it's campaign season, so that that's going to happen. And uh, with uh, with the way that COVID is and not being able to have uh, larger campaign rallies the way he did the first time around, uh, you've got to you've got to be judicious about uh, where you what you attend and where you attend it. So, let's bravo for the president. Now, I was invited to be a part of the group on the tarmac, but because of my situation with my left ankle and my leg constantly swelling up and going bonkers on me, I'm not able to stand on my my leg for that long. So I had to respectfully decline. But if he comes and I'm in a position where I can do something different, namely not stand up for two or three hours and wait for the president to show up, then I'll be fine. But I appreciate the fact that I at least had the honor to do that. I'm sure he will have a greeting party. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I already know who they're going to be because I was invited to be part of that group. But uh, the other thing is uh, um, uh, I know they're listening. When that happened, I know they're listening. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Now, there's one other little thing I want to throw out there because you mentioned something to me. Uh, There was a, 
a nationwide alert to Antifa to try to muster them to come to Tampa to uh, uh, set up protests around Tampa to uh, remind the president, quote, that he wasn't welcome here. Well, he is Mm -hmm. welcome here by the majority of the people because we have CENTCOM and we have our military base here. We do welcome the president, and we're honored to have him in our, our midst. And for these people that may be here to cause trouble and whatnot, good luck with that one. No, and and he's welcome in Portland too. The majority of people in Portland, uh, you know, they, they don't disrespect the president the way the loudmouths do. Nope. Remember the people, the people who are protesting the president. You're not welcome here, and things like that. That's a political stunt, mm-hmm. and it's a my and it's a minority with 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 very big bullhorns. They they it they make it seem like it's more people than it is. And the media gloms onto that and amplifies it times ten. It's really a, a very disgruntled minority that that feels that way and mm-hmm. feels obligated to act disrespectfully to to the president. So you know he could, he's the president of the United States. He he he's welcomed by over half the people everywhere. And when and when you look at the Republican demographic, his approval ratings are over ninety five percent, which is enormous. You know, for no. a for a president, any other I'll give you Reagan. I haven't seen I haven't seen a ninety five percent approval rating with Republicans. I'll give you one one other one. Joe Biden announced that he's going to form a group called Believers for Biden because uh, Donald Trump is polling sixty seven percent with the uh, evangelical uh, Christians that have been voted and asked who they're supporting, and Joe Biden's down at twenty four percent. So they're going to try to close that gap in some way or another. But with all the different things that the Democrats want to allow and want. To go along with the evangelicals are not going to go with them no and then this is the the choice is very very clear this elect this election you either want to go really far to the left or you don't that's that's the choice because if if biden gets in you're you're going to see some some radical stuff that's going to make obama look like a moderate guns so, Guns, yeah, assault so, weapons, so you, the assault rifle is illegal. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. this is this is a choice between do you want to jerk so far to the left that you make the communist Chinese look like a look like a, a moderate sovereign, or do you not? And and that choice is absolutely clear. The country does not want to jerk dramatically to the left. The, the, uh, the majority of Americans believe we went too far to the left during the eight years of Obama. So, you know, this is the choice. It's very, very clear. It's not a choice, a referendum on Donald Trump. It's a referendum on whether you want to become a socialist country. Yeah. Hold that thought. We're coming back from a break. We're going to take a break right now, folks, with Frank Silvato from the Underground USA podcast. By the way, he uh, he segued us into what I'm going to talk about with Barack Obama, who was at a funeral yesterday honoring a congressman by the name of John Lewis. And he turned it into a political speech and rally. Wonderful. Wonderful. Way to way to properly uh, uh, take care of an individual that deserved much more than that. I'll be right back. You're listening to the Captain's America Third Watch. News, insight, passion. AM 930, The Answer. Online at theanswersarasota.com. AM 930, The Answer. 
Hi, this is Mike Gallagher. You're listening to the Captain's America Third Watch with Captain Matt Bruce. Yes, you are. And this portion of the program brought to you by my very good friends at Moss Nissan and Moss Acura. And let me tell you something, because while the factories were slowing down production and dealerships were running out of vehicles to sell and inventory, Moss Nissan and Moss Acura went on a buying spree. And Dave Moss went out, and now they have over a 1,000 brand new and pre-owned vehicles for you to choose from. Moss, M-A-U-S is the spelling on that name, has the largest selection right now in the state. And before you go to buy elsewhere, see Moss first. They'll probably have the vehicle you want that the other guys might not. And their goal is to never lose your business. Overpriced with many favorable finance programs, including 0% loans with approved credit. And Moss Nissan Crystal River just received Nissan's prestigious award of excellence. Great job up there, guys. And if you're searching for a new and improved service experience and you want to save 20% on your service bill, the You Serve, You Save program applies to all veterans, all first responders, all active military, including pastors and faith workers. And I'll tell you what, their service departments at Moss handle all makes and all models. So... The choice is simple. The choice is clear. The choice is here. Moss Nissan and Acura, Newport, Ritchie, Crystal River, and now the two locations at Port Avenue in Tampa, Moss Acura and Moss Nissan. And always remember to tell them the captain sent you because guess what? You are going to save another $500 on the vehicle you're looking at because that's what telling them the captain sent me does for you. All right. Frank Silvato from the Underground USA podcast is with us, Mr. Frank. Mr. Captain. What were we talking about during the break that you said you might want to mention about? Well, Mr. Mr. Obama and his, uh, mm-hmm. his in, in, in insanely disrespectful transition from celebrating in a, in a mournful way the passing of someone who deserved of kudos because of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. into a propagandist campaign rally yeah about mail voting and whatnot yep mm-hmm. you know you know this is can you imagine what would have happened if a republican went to his funeral and started talking politics oh they would have literally buried him under the sand somewhere chris cuomo's head yeah chris cuomo's head would have exploded live on the air well, it kind of exploded already because he blamed uh, the president for uh, Herman Cain dying, saying that uh, he went to Tulsa because of President Trump and he got COVID as a result. Yeah, right, Chris. Like you know that. No, Chris Cuomo is a is a now has become a celebrated idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 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 guys the guys take on everything is so overtly partisan and contrived that it's I, I'm surprised we don't see checks from the DNC going to him as a pack. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, I I do know unfortunately. Now, uh we know about all the different things that have transpired here with the uh election day uh delay that's been talked about by the president and the the mail-in voting and this that and the other. We know about the problems that they've had over there in the past. We also know there's 65,000 votes from the May 23rd election in New York State that were mailed in that were not counted. Yeah, in some locations they're still counting things from from elections that have been decided. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. you know, this is if if you need a reason 
to understand that mail-in voting is is vulnerable to manipulation, understand that dead people in Chicago literally have received mail mail in ballots mm-hmm. and they haven't even requested them mm-hmm. you know so this is this is a this is a truth this is something that is that is verified it's it's tangible you can you can see the ballot that was sent to the dead guy who didn't request it mm-hmm. this is this is beyond absurd so if there was a if there was a vehicle to, to steal an election, this is it. And all this means is that you have to get beyond the fudge factor. And we've talked about this in every general election since we've been talking. Mm-hmm. That fudge that fudge factor is about five to six percent when it comes to what they can what they can fudge in order to pad pad the election for for a Democrat or a progressive. So that means Trump has to win in a landslide. If that happens, then this becomes moot. And if we can take back the House, we can expunge the mail-in voting thing. Now, what would you say if I told you one Democratic senator, Dianne Feinstein, was Democratic or was uh, defending China as being a respectable nation when we're talking about business liability and talking about uh, allowing citizens to be able to sue China for uh, the COVID-19 losses that they've suffered? Well, it tells me we better look at her campaign donations. That's that's what it tells me. You know, that's that's absurd. You mean her driver I mean, every, wasn't enough? Yeah, you, you know, I I mean, this is even even the the biggest novice in the world understands that China has been stealing our intellectual property for decades, and and the people who don't keep up with the news know that China has been stealing our military secrets for decades. And and people who who aren't bankers understand that China has been manipulating our currency for decades. So this is just a bizarre statement of detachment from reality. Now, our brothers and sisters of the badge up in uh, Massachusetts were ordered uh, to take the Blue Lives Matter flag off the back of the fire trucks. Because on the left side of the truck, they had the uh, Red Lives Matters flag. And on the right side of their trucks, they had the Blue Lives Matter. And the fire department union said, no way in hell. They refused the fire chief's order. They refused the city council's order up in a small town called Hingham, Massachusetts. And to that, I say kudos, guys. Yeah, bravo. And and, and if the chief comes tries to come down with any disciplinary action on them, they should have the red flu. Yeah. Yeah. And, and force and force this fire chief to either have to retire or be dismissed. That's a, that's a ridiculously political position to take, and they, uh, with a group of people who don't put someone's politics before they run into the building. Yep. And as a professional firefighter that retired because he got hurt in the line of duty, and as yourself uh, being a firefighter, we and the police were like brothers and sisters and very loyal to each other, and still are to this day. Yeah, they were just some good-natured ribbing about who who put their check in the wrong box for employment, or who could cook better, but, or who could cook better. You know, <laughs> but it's but the fact is that we need each other to be able to function properly, whether it's an accident scene, a fire, to, so you can secure people away from it, or whether you have a combative person in the back of an ambulance. You need you need to be able to work symbiotically with law enforcement. We we go hand in hand, police and fire. That's usually why many small small towns have a police and fire commission, not just a fire commission and a police commission. Well, 
Yeah, and standard equipment at one time in the fire service when you got what was called a family disturbance, which was usually uh, an unruly subject or whatever they call it. They didn't call the family disturbance back then. They called it something different. Um, you would have someone show up with a, uh, a halligan bar in their hand and another one with an axe <laughs> over their shoulder. Yeah, we you never know what you have to make when you have to breach and breach an entrance. Yeah, yeah, and of course the cops would call us up, and then I'm talking a little shop here. The cops would call us up and go, uh, "We got a report of a fire at this location. Can you get the door open for us?" And then they go and to bust the drug dealers inside or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, 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 I, I think I smell smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are the days. Anyway, uh, what are we going to do about this liability protection that may be holding up the next uh, coronavirus relief bill, which may or may not get passed? Uh, uh, over 400 businesses yesterday said we got to have the liability protection or we just we're not going to be around. Well, it, it is a valid it's a valid subject to have a debate about because small business will you you want to see them evaporate from the face of the planet. Hey, don't give them protection because the way that we live in a litigation society, the first person who goes to work and gets it because someone coughed over the counter at McDonald's, McDonald's is a business, and that's not a small business. So mm-hmm. we do have to take that subject seriously, but mm-hmm. you have to detach it. You have mm-hmm. to detach it from this bill. Now, finally, the <clears throat> National uh, Teachers Union is encouraging a uh, safety strike. Uh, in the states of California, Florida, a couple more blue states, might be half a dozen states before they get done, because of the fact that they want to open the schools ahead of having a vaccine for the COVID-19 uh, situation. Well, it, that's ridiculous, because when you look at the science, COVID is not prevalent among school-aged children. Influenza kills more school-aged children than COVID does. Yep. As a matter of fact, they, the the student population age would be the herd immunity group that we need to be socializing. Mm-hmm. So this is political. It has nothing to do with healthcare or science. And finally, the county prosecutor, uh, who happens to be a black guy, uh, totally vindicated uh, the uh, cop in the 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. He said there was no case. And there'll be no further discussion about it. Good. Blue Lives Matter. Yep. And how about that one? In the meantime, they ruined that young man's wife uh, and his wife's life. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Talk to you on Monday. Stay well, my friend. Frank Silvato from the Underground USA podcast. Go over there. Check it out. He's also on Facebook. And I'll be right back with more. And the Sports Zone guy. Don't go anywhere. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please subscribe, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. This podcast can be heard on iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and TuneIn, as well as on podcast platforms like CastBox, Podcast Addict, Sonos, SoundCloud, Spreaker, and Himalaya. This podcast has been a production of the Underground USA Podcast Network. All content is used with permission and exists in the public domain pursuant to the fair use law. You're listening to the Underground Podcast Network.